of TV is streaming and broadcasting this hearing live, and we will receive public comment for discussion and action items on today's agenda. Each speaker will be allowed up to three minutes, and when you have 30 seconds remaining, you will hear a chime indicating your time is almost up. When your allotted time is reached, I will announce that your time is up and take the next person queued to speak. We will take public comment from persons in City Hall first and then open up the remote access lines. For those persons participating via WebEx, the password is HPC2023. Please raise your hand when public comment is called for the item you are interested in speaking to. For those persons calling in to submit their testimony, you need to call area code 415-655-0001 and enter access code 2660-677-7732 and press pound twice. Um, you'll then need to wait for the item you're interested in speaking to and for public comment to be announced. To comment, you need to enter star three uh, to raise your hand. Once you've raised your hand, you'll hear a prompt stating that you have raised your hand to ask a question. Please wait to speak until the host calls on you. When you hear that your line has been unmuted, that is your indication to begin speaking. Best practices are to call from a quiet location and please mute the volume on your television or computer. For those persons attending in, pers in City Hall, please line up on the screen side of the room or to your right. Please speak clearly and slowly, and if you care to, state your name for the record. Finally, I'll ask that we all silence any mobile devices that may sound off during these proceedings. And now I would like to take roll. Commission President uh, Matsuda. Here. Commission Vice President Nagaswaran. Here. Commissioner Foley. Aye. Commissioner Vergara. Here. And Commissioner Wright. Here. Thank you, Commissioners. First on your agenda is general public comment. At this time, members of the public may address the Commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the Commission except agenda items. With respect to agenda items, your opportunity to address the Commission will be afforded when the item is reached in the meeting. Each member of the public may address the Commission for up to three minutes. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak under general public comment, it is closed and we can move on to department matters. Item one, department announcements. Good afternoon, commissioners. Ritz Sucre, department staff. Just wanted to provide you an update on your landmark designation work program. Um, the Parkside Branch Library and the Colombo Arch are both on their way to becoming our next city landmarks. Um, the Colombo Arch is just waiting for signature from the mayor. Um, so we will have two more new landmarks um, added to our long list of work that we have been working on. I also wanted to provide you an update that um, last week we had the opportunity to present um, the San Francisco survey in front of San Francisco Heritage, and the meeting went well. We are working towards establishing a partnership with Heritage on the San Francisco survey to kind of better assist in the efforts. We are planning to come back to you in December with our first round of findings um, focused on the inner sunset. Um, so that way then you will get a full update on all of the activities from SF Survey as well as um, what we've been doing to date for the last couple of years. So I'm happy to answer any questions and this concludes my report. Thank you. Okay, if there are no questions for Mr. Sucre, we can move on to Commission Matters. Item 2, Consideration of Adoption Draft Minutes for September 20th, 2023 and the Draft Minutes for October 4th. 2023 commissioners um, for the October 4th 2023 there is a typo um, and so we are we would like you to adopt amended minutes uh, basically on the October 4th minutes for items 5 and 6 commissioner writes 
um, Commissioner Wright was indicated as uh, voting nay uh, when he was actually absent. So we would just simply um, ask that you adopt them with that correction. And at this time, members of the uh, public, it is your opportunity to address the commission on their minutes. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed and the minutes are now before you. Motion to approve with the, with the correction. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to adopt the minutes as corrected. Commissioner Vergara. Yes. Commissioner Wright. Yes. Commissioner Foley. Aye. Commissioner Nagus Warren. Yes. And Commission President Matsuda. Yes. So move, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously five to zero. And we'll place this on item three, commission comments and questions. Any uh, comments or questions from the commission? Commissioner Wright. Yes, I, I would like to just announce um, uh, to everyone that I uh, participated in uh, a conference last week. It's uh, the APT conference, which is the Association for Preservation Technology, and that's an international uh, preservation, uh, technical preservation organization. And I had the privilege of uh, uh, meeting and, well, I had met him before, but working closely with um, and talking with um, John Sandor of the uh, National Park Service, and he uh, let me know that they, uh, the NPS has just the week before uh, uh, published an update to preservation brief number 16 on substitute materials, which um, was he then incorporated into uh, some of his discussions and presentations um, in a, a wood workshop that I participated in, as well as uh, a symposium um, on composite materials at the end of the conference and composite assemblies that tended to be a little more modern architecture focused, but uh, uh, I thought it would be helpful for everyone to know that there is an update to that that's now on the NPS website. Great, thank you very much for sharing that. Any other uh, comments or questions from the commission? Seeing none, we can move on. Um, I actually do have a couple of announcements. Um, Hans Baldoff um, is was confirmed by the Board of Supervisors some time ago and will be joining us uh, when he returns to the country um, after Thanksgiving. And um, Amy Campbell uh, was uh, moved forward from Rules Committee to the full board. So there is an outside <coughs> chance that she may be able to join us November 1st at the earliest. Um, finally, uh, yesterday at the Board of Supervisors, they voted to no longer accept remote public comment, um, with exception uh, to advance um, requests for a reasonable accommodation. Oh, I see. Wow. It's a big oh. change. Big change. Um, Commissioners, that will place us now under consideration of items proposed for continuance. Item four, case number 2019-01732-5COA for the property at 109 Liberty Street. Certificate of appropriateness is proposed for continuance to December 6, 2023. And item five, case number 2021-01017-6COA at 2259 through 2261 Fillmore Street. A certificate of appropriateness is proposed for indefinite continuance. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on either of the two items proposed for continuance 
only on the matter of continuance. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, commissioners, your continuance calendar is now before you. Is there a motion? Motion to approve. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to continue items as proposed. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagaswarn? Yes. And Commission President Matsuda? Yes. So moved, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously five to zero and places us on your consent calendar. There were no items on your consent calendar, so we can move on to your regular calendar for item, item 6A and B for case numbers 2023-008838-LBR and 2023-008839-LBR for the properties at 599 Castro Street and 916 Kearney Street. Respectively, these are legacy business registry applications. Hello, Commissioners. Elena Moore, Planning Staff. We have two legacy businesses before you today. Staff will give their presentations, and afterwards, members of the public and business representatives will have a chance to share their stories during public comment. Thank you. Hello, um, Maggie Dong, planning staff. Um, the first legacy business application that is before you is for Thai House, a 38-year-old business on Castro and 19th Street in the Castro neighborhood. Thai House is a family-run restaurant that serves authentic Thai cuisine. Some of their dishes include crispy money bags, sweet and tangy pad Thai, and rich coconut curries. The restaurant was founded by husband and wife, Suraful and Kritia Marigart who immigrated to the United States from Thailand in 1982. In 1985, they opened their first restaurant, Thai House, and it was located at 151 Noe Street. At the time, there were approximately 20 Thai restaurants in San Francisco. Throughout the years, the family opened several Thai restaurants, Thai House restaurants in Dubos Triangle, Castro, and the Tenderloin. Currently, Thai House is run by Kritia and her son, Surafol. The business is committing to safeguarding their Thai cuisine dishes, housemade sauces, and exterior channel letters. Staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add Thai House to the Legacy Business Registry. This concludes my presentation, and my colleague Lizzie will present the next Legacy Business application. Good afternoon, Elizabeth Mao, planning staff. The second legacy business application we have is for Earwax Productions, a 40-year-old sound design studio located at the Sentinel Building at 916 Kearney Street. Earwax Productions was founded in 1983 by a group of composers, electronic musicians, and journalists who found a niche providing sound design to local Bay Area theater companies. Today, their sound design projects range from major Hollywood features to mobile apps, and from animation to interactive museum installations. Earwax Productions also helped create some of the, some of the first audio tours with the Antenna Theater, beginning with the Liberty Ship SS Jeremiah O'Brien, the Aquarium at the California Academy of Sciences, and the De Young Museum. Earwax Productions has received numerous awards and accolades, including honors in the Bay Area Critics Circle Awards, Northern California Broadcasters, Association of Independents in Radio, as well as contributing to an Academy Award for Francis Ford Coppola's production of Bram Stoker's Dracula. 
Since its founding, the business has worked with local filmmakers, artists, and inventors. Earwax Productions is committed to maintaining its sound design studio and the highest quality and innovation in audio and audio technologies. Staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add Earwax Productions to the Legacy Business Registry. This concludes the Legacy Business presentations and staff are available for questions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on either of these two legacy business registry applications. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed. And these two legacy business registry applications are now before you. Commissioners? Commissioner Brigar. As is always the case with uh, legacy business applications, it's great that the owners of these businesses care as much, as much about being part of the city's tradition as they do. And so I'm all for it. And uh, also was really interested to read the history of the recording studio at the Sentinel building, uh, beginning with the, um, the Kingston Trio, which my mom and dad saw back at the Hungry Eye back in the late 1950s. So good luck to both of those uh, businesses. Thank you, Commissioner Wright. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I just wanted to thank both of these businesses for their applications and for their uh, dedication to the community and to the city. Uh, I uh, had not previously been uh, uh, familiar with the earwax productions, but um, I have uh, lived near the um, the Thai house and um, regularly eat there. So uh, good food, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Any other comments from the commission, Commissioner Foley? Do I'm just I'm just happy you're all here, and uh, I've actually eaten there a lot too, and I like your plaid <laughs> Thank you. Do I hear a motion from the commission? Motion to approve. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to adopt recommendations for approval. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagaswaran? Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So moved, commissioners. That motion passes unanimously five to zero. Commissioners, uh, I was remiss in including item seven under your continuance calendar. We do have a request to continue this matter to November 15th for item seven, case number 2023-001148-COA at 945-947 Minnesota Street, a certificate of appropriateness proposed for continuance to November 15th, 2023. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on item seven's request for continuance to November 15th, only on the matter of continuance. Good afternoon, commission. Thanks very much for my con your consideration on this matter. I'm the next door neighbor who got the previous permit revoked and the COA also went along with it. So I'd like to offer my comments for the hearing. However, I'll be out of town on the 15th through the 28th. I'm requesting to schedule it two weeks or so later after the other request. Sure. Thank you for your consideration. So commissioners, if you wanted to consider a later date for the continuance, it would be uh, sounds like you're back in December, sir. Right, so you're back in December. So for December the December 6th, 1st, or excuse me, 6th. December 6th. Will you be here for the December 6th 
So last call for public comment on the matter of continuance for item seven. Seeing no request to speak, public comment is closed and this matter is now before you. Motion continued to December 6th. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to continue. Item seven to December 6th, Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagas Warren? Yes. And Commission President Matsuda? Yes. So moved, commissioners, a motion passes unanimously five to zero, placing us on item eight. For case number 2023-008250, PCA and MAP, for the Nonprofit Arts Education Special Use District Planning Code and Zoning Map Amendments, I understand we have two requests for recusal. Commissioner Nagas Warren. Um, yes, I'm going to request to be recused. Um, I am a salaried, salaried employee of Fort Mason Center, a nonprofit. Um, Fort Mason Center has a claim related to the SFAI bankruptcy, and so there would be a conflict of interest under the State Political Reform Act administered by the Fair Political Practices Commission and San Francisco Municipal Campaign and Government Conduct Code 3.207, and, um, and I request recusal. Thank you. Commissioner Wright. Uh, yes, I also request recusal from this item. Uh, the company that I work for in uh, private practice is uh, a preservation consultant to a potential buyer um, and the team considering uh, the project that is uh, uh, kind of the source of this, uh, this item. Thank you. Is uh, there a motion to recuse Commissioners Nagaswaran and Wright? Motion to recuse Commissioner Nagaswaran and Wright. And I'll second that. Thank you, Commissioners. On that motion to recuse Commissioners Wright and Nagaswaran, Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagaswaran? Yes. And Commission President Matsuda? Yes. So move, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously five to zero. And unfortunately, we are put into the situation where we have lost a quorum for this matter and cannot actually continue a hearing on this, even to continue the matter. Okay. Um, so there is the opportunity um, that because our uh, a sixth commissioner may be sat on November 1st, there is the uh, potential of a postponement. Otherwise, um, the item will move forward without a recommendation from the Historic Preservation Commission. Uh, are there, we, is there a suggestion by the commission secretary about what we? There's really nothing we can do, right. unfortunately, because we have two recusals, we've lost a quorum. So, so at the very we most, we could, we could postpone it. it until? Well, I mean, it's going to be, postpone no matter what yeah it's a matter of whether or not there's enough time to for it to be heard by the historic preservation commission before the 90-day deadline is met um so at this point there's really nothing we can do except for moving on on the next item with your agenda but it'll just go straight to the board well no the planning commission needs to consider it but then it'll go to the board of the plan then it would go to the board mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, commissioners, um, item nine, case number 2016-013156-SRV-03 for the citywide historic context statement, architecture, planning, and preservation professionals, a collection of biographies. This is for your consideration to adopt 
modify or disapprove. SFGov, can we go to the uh, presentation? Thank you. Perfect, thank you. Hello, commissioners, Elena Moore, planning department staff. Today, I am bringing the architecture, planning, and preservation professionals, a collection of biographies, document before you for adoption. I previously presented this document before you in May of 2022, and since then, we've conducted further outreach for the project and have updated the document accordingly. Multiple people have contributed to this document, including myself, Melanie Bishop, and former staff member Brandon Gunn. So first I'll go over the project introduction, I'll go over a sample biography, the accompanying evaluative frameworks, and finally the implications of this project for the SF survey effort. So as a reminder, SF Survey is a multi-year effort to identify and to record places and resources of cultural, historical, and architectural importance to various communities in San Francisco. It is a multifaceted project with fieldwork, accompanying historic evaluations, community engagement, and community outreach, among many other steps. And a really important part of the SF survey effort is the citywide historic context statement, which is a collection of documents that form the foundation for decision-making by providing a comprehensive framework for identifying and evaluating historic and cultural resources. So we have thematic documents that form the citywide historic context statement, like the Panama Pacific International Exposition document, we have architectural documents, such as Victorian-era styles, and we have cultural contexts, such as the draft African-American historic context statement. And today's document falls into the architectural category. So for this project, we have researched and written over 350 biographies focused on figures who have impacted the built environment of San Francisco. These figures are varied, including architects, builders, contractors, developers, planners, preservationists, and more. And the document also includes an evaluative framework that will be used to determine the level of significance for these professionals. And this is really crucial information when staff is working on historic evaluations of properties throughout the city. So, Today, only the evaluative framework is being considered for adoption. The biographies will exist as a constantly evolving draft document that will be shared publicly. And we have a project website where we'll post these documents and where members of the public can access this information and submit any names or other information that they'd like us to add. So this document uh, serves as a guide to assigning significance to various architecture and building professionals. 
One of the primary goals of this project is to tell a broader and more inclusive story of the city of San Francisco's architectural heritage. And so this is a really focused effort to expand the stories that we include in this architectural history and to make this history richer with new information from a variety of community members. And so accordingly, we have written biographies for many builders and contractors that were not previously recorded in the department's information. And we've created evaluative frameworks with distinct considerations for women architects and architects with cultural, racial, or ethnic associations. As part of this effort, we have also elected to no longer use the term master architect due to the term's associations with the accreditation of one architect for the work of many. Moving forward, the department will use the term architect of merit or builder of merit, developer of merit, and so forth. The department hopes that by using these new terms, conversations around significance will expand and will result in greater recognition and diversity within the department's recognized historic resources. So I'll just briefly um, go over one biography. As I mentioned, there are over 350, and those are all available online in their draft form. Um, so this slide shows Worli Wong, who was a 20th century Chinese-American architect who um, practiced in the Second Bay tradition. Uh, his work can be found in Chinatown, in residential parts of the city, and in surrounding um, suburbs in the North Bay and East Bay. Um, Throughout the Architect Biographies project, we actually uncovered projects that the city hadn't previously uh, recorded on him, such as Buddha's Universal Church in Chinatown. And so this is just an example um, of the importance of this project in um, gathering additional projects for figures that might not have been um, previously celebrated in architectural history. So as I mentioned, the document includes a distinct set of evaluative frameworks. And the first is a general set of considerations to look at when determining if a professional rises to the level of architect or builder of merit. So some of the considerations include craftsmanship, career tenure, qualifications, education. So questions that staff might ask themselves when uh, reviewing these figures would be, did their did they practice during a significant period of development in San Francisco? Were they cited as a creator or influencer of a significant Bay Area architectural style? Um, and as a note, education level will not preclude any professional from being listed as an architect or builder of merit. It's simply one of a number of considerations. And so if the professional fits into any of these above categories, they might be eligible for architect of merit status, and their work will warrant further consideration under criterion C or three. Not all works by an architect of merit will automatically qualify for eligibility, so this framework also includes considerations for um, how to evaluate an architect of merit's body of work. So we also created an evaluative framework for architects with racial, cultural, or ethnic group associations. 
And when using these frameworks, all of the frameworks, um, it's essential to treat each professional as an individual with a distinct professional and personal experience. And these are simply suggested questions that staff can consider to help expand the diversity of people lifted up in San Francisco's architectural history and to help look beyond which professionals are covered in most traditional architectural history accounts of the city. So for this category, some of these considerations include general questions of career tenure, but also whether the professional's work contributed to the history of a racial or cultural group in San Francisco, whether they were a rare practitioner from their cultural group during the period that they were working in, um, whether they used their skills to assist their community group, and um, whether they were covered in media accounts. And the rest of the considerations are outlined in the case report. Those are just a few of the questions that staff might ask themselves. We similarly developed a tailored framework for identifying female architects of merit. And department biographies of female professionals were also lacking before the start of this project. And so we've now written many of these biographies and um, have gathered and are continuing to gather submissions from community members. So here, the considerations in the evaluative framework include general questions of career tenure and caliber of projects, as well as rarity in profession. For instance, um, was this professional one of a small number of female practitioners working during their time? Were they one of the rare women working in real estate during the late 19th century? And once again, um, if the professional fits into these categories, they might be eligible for architect of merit status, and then we would accordingly um, evaluate their body of work. So today I wanted to also add to the presentation by um, explaining how it's going to connect with our SF survey effort and how we'll be able to use this information. So the information from this project, including the biographical information and the projects lists, feeds into our digital survey database, ARCHES, which we've presented um, before you before. And this data upload process is in the works. So eventually, all of the information that was gathered by staff and by community members will be um, publicly accessible in ARCHES. So once the project is complete, you'll be able to see an architect or builder's entire portfolio across the city, as well as connections to other professionals, connections to design firms, and connections to schools or educational institutes. So I have um, a photo here that kind of shows an example of this information on arches. So this is uh, focused on the builder Alfonso Harrington. Um, you can see on the left-hand side, this is a um, screenshot from Arches that shows the kind of information that you can see about um, our people. And so we have um, their birth and death date, biographical information, there's a place to record their cultural association. And then on the right-hand side, you can see this network of all of the projects that are associated with this builder. And so you can click on this builder, and this kind of network um, pops up with all of these projects. And if you click onto one of the addresses, then maybe if there was a landscape architect associated with that project, they'll pop up as well. And you get this really complete picture of um, all the kinds of people that were impacting the built environment of San Francisco. 
So a few last thoughts before I conclude the presentation. As mentioned in the staff report, we have finished up our dedicated outreach to community members, um, including sending out this case report for noticing before the hearing. But as I mentioned, we will always continue to accept new submissions for um, new information, new architects, new builders on our project website. Um, and this will continue to be a living document that will be um, in draft form. And as a side note, because this is a living document, I just want to note that an omission of an architect from the current draft list does not suggest that they are not a figure of importance. We have been collecting these biographies as they come up in projects or if they were already recorded in historic context statements. So there are still many, many left to complete. Um, and I just wanted to uh, note that. So this concludes uh, my presentation, and I am available for any questions. Thank, Thank you. you. Very good. Commissioners? Oh, sorry. Should we have public comment first? We should open up public yes. comment, unless they're pressing questions. No, I don't think so. We, um, can, we can wait. Doesn't look like we'll have much <laughs> anyway. Um, members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx, seeing no request to speak. Public comment is closed, and now, commissioners, you may Thank ask you. your questions. Thank you. Commissioner Foley. Um, so I think it's great. I, I think this work is really impressive. I love the fact that it's all online. I love the fact that you can actually go search it. I, I just think it's really super. Um, the only thing I'd like to see done someday is my little QR pet code. thing. QR <laughs> codes. QR codes. So I'll, I'll bring that up with a other people in the future, but this is really great. And just the way you can actually see all the information is super great. And I know we couldn't, we didn't have um, the nonprofits art education use district uh, in front of us, but the work that you all did and the speed you did it in is really great and it's really appreciative. So thank you very much. Thank you. Commissioner Vergara. I'd just like to echo what Commissioner Foley said and thank you for your your detail, the, the research that you did and the great detail and presentation is just amazing and uh, something that I hope you're proud of. We certainly are. Uh, I was doing some research on uh, the state website of California Historical Resources and uh, it doesn't hold a candle to the work that you do. Thank you. Commissioner Nargis Warren. Thank you. Um, uh, I, I know you were talking about, um, Ms. Moore, you were talking about using previous context statements to draw upon, and I think you're already doing this, but also previous HREs that have written, been written um, that I know, having written a few of them myself, there were some obscure things that I would always find or um, probably repetitive things I was finding. So this is a huge, you know, um, uh, resource and improvement on a system and it's going to be an example for um, other communities across California and the country I think um, and just to reiterate the the um, number of, of women that are in architecture or the or built in you know building um, profession um, a number of years ago the AIA American Institute of Architects did a study um, and although um, the students in architecture schools were comprised of 50% women and 50% men, even from the time that I went to architecture school more than um, 30 years ago, um, it, 
it is still the fact that only 15% get licensed. Um, but there's a number of women that are as talented as anybody that's licensed, um, and also those who are licensed that are, are not uh, given credit. Um, I would also encourage going to different firms um, and having them provide lists of their employees. Um, and you know, it's a timely thing to do because there's a lot of um, older firms that have been around a really long time um, that might be able to give you uh, a great deal of um, research information on, on who worked on what projects. Um, and so that, that would be wonderful. Um, and I, I do appreciate the inclusivity of this document. I would like to go away from using the terms color um, when referring to people because I always think of people as um, having a background in a culture uh, rather than a color. Um, I think colors tend to be kind of very vague and um, subjective and um, whereas um, using the terms of their actual origin is an important part of telling the full story of where they came from, what their con contribution is, and the overall picture of San Francisco, which is a hugely diverse group of people that has evolved over time and had um, an impression upon um, not only our city, but across the country, the way that we see people and um, how we deal with them. So I appreciate that. I'd also like to echo every, the commissioner's uh, comments about how comprehensive and inclusive this document is. I particularly like the section where you um, identified a particular individual and then provided the analysis about why they may not be an architect of merit and why they are, because it allows people to um, be able to further document if if that needs to be challenged or it needs to be further explored. And then, um, you know, allows, I think, a, a more uh, inclusive discussion that these people were definitely uh, at least recognized and here are the reasons. And that's, that's very important. Um, and I don't think a lot of documents do that. So I really appreciate that. Uh, that particular aspect of it. And then I really, uh, for for people who are not in the know and don't understand or have no historical background about who an architect, uh, which architect designed a particular part of the neighborhood, I really liked this visual that you are, or Arches is providing because it allows people of any, I think, um, educational level, any, uh, linguistic level, any, just anyone, anyone who, particularly those who are not so familiar with um, the built environment, to see who, who created their, their house and how important that is to the overall, uh, I guess, uh, environment and community of San Francisco. So thank you for really thinking at all levels so that this document can have an impact and can be appreciated uh, by many. Oh, Commissioner Wright. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to um, tack on to uh, what um, President Masuda was saying uh, with regard to people's ability to um, kind of understand uh, what we're finding and the research that, that we're gaining, uh, the information that we're gaining. Uh, and I think maybe to kind of connect it a little bit further, once it's made its way into arches, then it 
it will eventually make its way to the property information map. Is that correct? Where it's another way for people to click on um, a parcel and learn about the, the building or the parcel's history. Elena Moore, planning staff. Um, yeah, I just want to note that it's um, actually in, in PIM right now already, so that's kind of our first step in the process was um, uploading the spreadsheet with all the parcel numbers and all that information into PIM, so staff can already start to use it when they're working on projects. And then we had a summer intern that was working on getting all the data into Arches. Thank you, that's great. Not a fun project. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> We appreciate that summer intern. Yes, we do. Definitely. Okay, any other comments from the commission? Would anyone so care we to have make a, a uh, anybody, any commissioners would like to make a motion to adopt? I'll move to adopt. Second. Seeing no further discussion, commissioners, there is a motion that has been seconded to adopt the um, Citywide historic context statement on that motion, Commissioner Vergara. Yes. Commissioner Wright. Yes. Commissioner Foley. Aye. Commissioner Nagas Warren. Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda. Yes. So moved, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously, five to zero, and will place us on the final item on your agenda today, number ten, for the housing projects and state laws informational presentation. SFGov, can we go to the presentation, please? Good afternoon, President Matsuda and members of the Commission. Kate Connor, Manager of Housing Implementation Programs with the Planning Department. It's a pleasure to be here today. Today I'm going to provide an overview of the State Density Bonus Law and the San Francisco review process. I will also discuss the intersection with the Housing Accountability Act and the effect that state laws may have on the Historic Preservation Commission discretion. So the state density bonus law was established by the state of California in 1979 as an incentive-based program for providing on-site affordable units. The program does have certain eligibility criteria, namely the project must contain five units or more, it must be residential or mixed use, and it must provide affordable units on site for a period of 55 years. If those units are also counting towards San Francisco's inclusionary program, those units must remain affordable for life of the project. State density bonus has three components. There's the density bonus, incentives and concessions, and then finally waivers. The amount of density bonus is dependent upon the number of affordable units and the level of affordability it proposed in the project. If you provide more affordable units, the project is entitled to additional density. In order to accommodate that additional density, a project may need relief from code requirements. And that relief can come in the form of incentives and concessions or waivers. So what is an incentive or concession? An incentive or concession must reduce the cost of the project. 
This can be a development standard and can include such planning code requirements as permitted obstructions, height, and ground floor ceiling height. The number is limited between one and four, and that is dependent upon the provided affordability in the project. So if we consider an example, let's look at ground floor ceiling height. Reducing that ground floor ceiling height requirement, it may reduce the overall height of the project, and that could affect the construction type and therefore reduce the cost of the project. So the city is incredibly limited in its discretion and can only deny an incentive or a concession if it does not result in actual cost reductions or if it would have a specific adverse impact on public health or safety or on a resource that is listed on the California Register as defined by state law. So what is a waiver? A waiver is an exception to a development standard. These are mainly volumetric requirements that are necessary to accommodate the project with the increased density and any of the requested incentives and concessions. Examples can include height, bulk, or rear yard. A project may require relief from the height requirement in order to accommodate those additional units. As you may have noticed, I also included height as a potential for an incentive or concession. So how do we determine which one it falls into? We actually have to look at every project individually. The same code requirement could either be an incentive or a waiver depending upon the specifics of a project. Mm -hmm. We've seen height as an incentive in high-rise construction where the extra height may not be needed, but <clears throat> project sponsors do demonstrate that it does reduce the overall cost of the project. But again, the city is incredibly limited in its discretion and can only deny a waiver if it is deemed unnecessary or would have a specific adverse impact upon public health or safety or historic resources, resources listed on the California Register. So what is the intersection with San Francisco's inclusionary program? Let's consider a 100-unit base project. If the on-site inclusionary rate is 20%, then that project is automatically entitled to a density bonus under state law. Although those bonus units must remain as a market rate and the number of affordable units remain the same, in San Francisco we do apply the affordable housing fee. And how this works is by applying the fee to the entire project and providing credits for the on-site units. So given the complexities surrounding state density bonus law, the department has published Planning Director Bulletin 6, implementing the state density bonus law. This bulletin details all of San Francisco's interpretations, including how we apply state density bonus in form-based districts, which was something that state law did not originally contemplate. The bulletin also de details how we process state density bonus projects. For conventional state density bonus projects, the Commission must make findings as to whether the project has a specific adverse impact on public health or safety as defined by state law, and these are not discretionary determinations. If there is an underlying entitlement, like a conditional use authorization or a large project authorization, the process will remain the same. However, the city's discretion is incredibly limited in those instances. Finally, state density bonus in and of itself does not affect CEQA review.
So the same statement I keep repeating as far as the limited discretion and if there is any sort of specific adverse impact on public health or safety or on a historic resource that is listed on the California Register. I want to go over kind of what that definition is for a historic resource. Um, it must be listed on the California Register. Being eligible for the California Register does not afford the same protections for this particular finding. Even if a property is an <coughs> Article 10 or 11 property, if it isn't listed on the California Register, there aren't those same protections under these findings. Um, and then also, like many of you are familiar with what the department determines to be kind of a Category A building in terms of historic preservation. And that you know, can include Article 10, Article 11. It can also include national or state register. But they can also include buildings that are of a particular age. And so just to kind of reiterate, the only kind of projects that we're looking at here are those that are listed on the California Register. So the language also states that there cannot be a specific adverse impact. And so this would occur where there's no feasible method to satisfactorily mitigate or av avoid the specific adverse impact without rendering the development unaffordable to low-income or moderate-income households. And so an example of like an adverse impact that you know, we can think of is demolition. So then how does state density bonus intersect with the Housing Accountability Act? The Housing Accountability Act was established in 1982, and it limits a local jurisdiction's ability to deny or reduce the density of a code-complying project. If a project requires a variance or an exception, it is not considered to be code-complying. That being said, the Housing Accountability Act does recognize state density bonus projects, including all the exceptions that they may get in the form of incentives, concessions, or waivers as being code-complying. Projects all, um, only have to comply with objective standards to invoke the Housing Accountability Act, be two-thirds residential, and consist of two units or more. And then if a jurisdiction wrongly denies a housing project, that jurisdiction may be subject to fines of up to $10,000 per unit uh, due to recent amendments to the Housing Accountability Act. So how do these two laws affect planning commission discretion? And then I'll get into the HBC discretion as well. So most of the state density bonus projects are subject to the Housing Accountability Act. Um, we've received well over 100 state density bonus projects now, so I think our planning commission is becoming more used to seeing them before them. Um, here, you know, again, the discretion is incredibly limited. We can't deny or reduce the density of the projects that are subject to the Housing Accountability Act. And further, the city cannot deny the waivers, incentives, or concessions unless they make those specific adverse impact on public health or safety findings. In addition, there has also been recent case law that reaffirms that state density bonus projects can include amenities, even if those amenities require a waiver of development standards. So even if the department or the commission can redesign a project so that it maintains that density, it maintains that number of units, we are still incredibly limited in our, our discretion. And we would not be able to deny a waiver that's associated with any amenity that's related to the project. 
So kind of essentially, if it complies with state density bonus, that project as designed is what's before you. And we're very limited in being able to move massing or make adjustments to it. So how do these laws affect Historic Preservation Commission discretion? For certificates of appropriateness and permits to alter, only objective requirements can be applied. A denial of a certificate of appropriateness or a permit to alter based upon subjective determinations is not allowed under the Housing Accountability Act. Unless there is a specific adverse impact to a historic resource that is listed on the California Register, discretion, again, is incredibly limited. And as discussed earlier, this is a pretty high bar. So now for a couple of really exciting definitions. All right, so a specific adverse impact is defined as a significant, quantifiable, direct, and unavoidable impact based on objective, identified, written public health or safety standards, policies, or conditions that existed on the date the application was deemed complete. And then also objective standards. So objective standards are those that involve no personal or subjective judgment by a public official and being uniformly verifiable by reference to an external and uniform benchmark or criterion available and knowable by both the development applicant or proponent as well as the public official. So again, state density bonus projects, including all those requested waivers and incentives, are considered to be code compliant in meeting those objective standards. So what can we do to ensure that preservation goals are taken into consideration when discretion is so limited? And I think the answer really is creating more objective standards. So we looked at the Historic Preservation Commission motion that delegates the minor scopes of work to the planning department, and it contains a couple of examples of objective standards. Uh, specifically, I believe it's scope 21 regarding accessory dwelling units that has some good examples for something that would be objective. Um, I think it states that the materials must match and the windows must also match the size, shape, and material. So instead of relying on a subjective determination based upon context, it's very directive and it doesn't allow for that subjective judgment. Also, uh, the planning department is currently working on creating objective design standards and this is part of the housing element rezoning effort. Oh, and the one thing, too, I did want to touch upon, I think there's also always been some consternation around creating objective design standards, considering that you could potentially waive them under state density bonus. The one thing I would like to offer in particular for the Historic Preservation Commission is that if you do come up with objective standards that are really more design-based, those would likely fall into an incentive or concession category, because they're not affording the project additional units or density. Um, and therefore, your incentives and concessions are much more limited based upon the affordability. Mm -hmm. So if you had something for you know, siding or windows or roof pitch or whatever it might be, if a project sponsor did want to get out of those, they would only have so many to play with.
And then finally, I did want to close by saying that I think this has really been a really big adjustment, not only for all of our commissions, but I think also just for planning staff having to do all of our plan checks. Um, I do hope that this presentation helps provide you a general overview, and I'm definitely available for questions. Thank you. A lot to take in. Indeed. Um, at this time, we should take public comment, or at least afford it. Um, members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this matter. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no members of the public requesting to speak at this time, commissioners, public comment is closed, and this informational item is now before you. Thank you. Commissioners? Commissioner Nagus Warren. Um, so um, I wanted to know how many of the San Francisco of San Francisco's buildings are on the um, um, California Register. Kate Connor, Planning Department staff. I actually don't know that exact number. I don't know, uh, Rich, if you might happen to know. I don't have offhand. the number off the top of my head, but we have it mapped, and so we have the information in our database. I, ironically, I actually just requested a map from our staff hitting I, upon this exact issue. I think, Commissioner Vergara, did you research that? I did, <laughs> I did research it. Uh, there are 222 California historical resources in San Francisco. Uh, just some random observations about them. They're also uh, under the umbrella of California historical resources. There are points of historical interest, a list of which I could not find, and California historical landmarks, of which there are 48 in San Francisco. Um, a quick check, as my students were doing their Road to the Civil War timelines this morning, uh, comparing the two lists of the 48 historical landmarks uh, all but four of them are on the Register of Historical Resources, and that's the one that counts, that, those 222. But of those 222, one of them uh, appears to be the Francis Scott Key statue that used to be in Golden Gate Park, so the fact that it's on that registry didn't, didn't help it. Uh, register contains the Palace of fine and decorative arts on Treasure Island, but I don't believe it contains the Palace of Fine Arts from the Panama Pacific Exposition. Uh, one of the locations is uh, the, the Lydia, which, which is a whaler that is buried underneath uh, King Street and the Embarcadero. So it's a really random list, but that's what we have. Mm. Yeah, and that's what I recall from mm -hmm. <laughs> looking at that um, website years ago, mm -hmm. that it was obscure things that we don't have on our local registers and um, so th this brings up the question on whether we need to start putting these buildings on the California register um, maybe Rich Sucre you could sure I'm happy we we do have a process um, as a certified local government to certify buildings under the National Register, and if something is certified in the National Register, it is automatically listed in the California Register. So California Register properties also include um, National Register listed properties. And so. my recollection of that um, is that they don't necessarily put it on the list on the website. 
Correct. That's, so yeah. so it's one of the struggles that we've been having with the state is that their information is notoriously um, it is it is it varies. How about that? That's a great political way of saying it. Um, and maybe we should so, provide them the list that yeah, they we have, have accurate information there. for what you know we have pulled together as part of SF survey. And so I feel confident in the material that we have to date. Um, it's a question on whether or not um, determinations were made, for example, under 106 that might have happened. In terms of the actual designation, that's the key thing um, that's tied to many of the state laws. So, um, And under CEQA, uh, are there any determinations made of properties um, because CEQA is a state mandate or regulation, <coughs> um, whether that would also impose upon the, you know, any state funded program that they should include that as part of their. Potentially. So it's the question that you're asking is a little, um, a little funny. So most of what gets um, categorized is if it is do, do, undertaken as part of a NEPA process in most mm -hmm, cases, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, CEQA then obviously is the state local process. Right. The two can be joined, but not often. Um, but if a historical resource was found in either process, it is typically forwarded onto the state um, right. for them to kind of recognize, but it still doesn't get to the fact of it being designated is the key thing. Yeah. Um, and the designated is really where most of this, um, most of the state laws uh, um, apply to or exempt you from. Um, I would want to closely look at the definition of that, um, you know, of California Register's uh, definition of listed, um, because that has always been something that's you know, when you're looking at the categorizations of historic resources, the codes that they have, there's specific things on that, but there's also specific things on what is listed and what um, has been determined eligible. Determined eligible, Correct. but they, there is that that nuance there that we need to really think about and see if there's something to be done there. Um, the other question I had was. Um, in terms of the projects that come before us, are you saying that for any of these housing projects that we would only see the ones that were related to California Register uh, listed, on the, California listed on the California Register? Or are you saying that we would see any and all projects, but we would be limited in what we could say about these projects? So correct, uh, Kate Connor, Planning Department staff. So for listed on the California National Register, if there's a specific adverse impact to a property that is listed, mm -hmm. you have more discretion to be able to deny a waiver or an incentive or concession. Mm -hmm. So you will continue to see all of the same projects, but your discretion for state density bonus projects or those that are subject to the Housing Accountability Act is just incredibly limited. And so can we not make recommendations for a project and allow the the developer 
its discretion to take the recommendation or not take the recommendation if it's not registered if it's if it's not registered I think that that's something that could definitely you know happen in the public hearing format but there isn't any obligation for the right. project sponsor to you know take that so that's when we're encouraging the objective standards so that there is something to rely upon that we can give to the project sponsors mm -hmm. thank you thank you commissioner Vergara um, a couple of things one one of the locations that's on the state register is telegraph hill and so an example of what is what comprises Telegraph Hill it's it's all pretty vague so I'm not sure what what that means but hopefully there's a lot of leeway there uh, and then the other is in addition to the steps we've talked about increasing the number of objective standards and adding landmarks to the history uh, the state registry what is the likelihood that this body can recommend to the planning department that they recommend to the mayor's office to lobby Sacramento to add to uh, to amend that 1979 law to include locally designated landmarks and historic districts okay connor planning department staff um this is something that we have kind of raised during the legislative sessions um, one thing to really take note of too is that there's been a myriad of new housing programs that have been developed and approved and are now effective since about 2017 when we started to have large housing practices or large housing programs um, but all of those also do allow or do or they have demolition protections for properties that are not only listed on the California register and national but also mentions locally listed so I think there is kind of you know movement on the state side as far as protecting like local preservation programs but this would have to be an amendment that would be made to state density bonus law and I think kind of it has been tricky to be able to kind of recommend those amendments that might further reduce kind of housing development just given the housing crisis but it is something that we have raised and the programs that are coming are, are here SB 35 SB 423 all of those do have protections for the locally listed I'm sorry but you you just mentioned demolition Oh, correct. So, yeah, if you're so for some of the other programs, uh, it's a little bit of a kind of it's a different requirement. So, for instance, for SB 35, you can't demolish a resource right. and it includes locally listed. Okay. So I think there's just more of an acknowledgement about, you know, local programs for preservation instead of just relying on the state or national. So I, I guess just to follow up on Commissioner Vergara's inquiry, um, is it that you're thinking that we should, as a commission, uh, make a request to the planning department to see if? If the mayor's office is willing to lobby the state legislature to amend the density bonus law to include locally designated landmarks as well as structures within locally designated historic districts. And that's something we can definitely investigate. We've definitely talked about it during previous legislative sessions. Or if there is any other way to recognize, we're talking about being listed on the California registry, mm -hmm. but if there is any other way in which we can further uh, add to that list, mm -hmm. including the local landmarks or local designations. Yeah, definitely, we can, we can definitely look into that. I, any ideas that you guys may have, please feel free to pass them along. I don't. Yeah think off the top of my head that it can happen without legislation or am I 
Correct. Yeah. So, and, and keep in mind, commissioners, I think you might have heard Kate mention this. Part of the issue here also is like we're, we're talking immediately about the state density bonus law. The other state bills also have varying protections related to historic resources that are not necessarily consistent with one another. So like one state law might protect designated historic resources. Other state laws might encompass locally designated historic resource programs. Other state laws rely on the definitions that we rely upon in CEQA. Um, so it's kind of a little bit of pick and choose about which program is being used for which housing project and then how historic resources are accommodated. In a lot of the state programs, um, historic resources are often carved out or um, dealt with somehow. The issue is it's, it's not consistent across all of them, um, especially related to the kind of recent housing legislation that we've had. I, I think the commission would like to be proactive to make sure that we can see protections as much as we can for all of the new as well as the 1979 laws that affect historic resources. Sorry to jump in. Um, Commissioner Regard, did you have other? I, I was just wondering if it would be appropriate to put that in the form of a motion right now for the commission to vote to make those recommendations that I mentioned. I think, Commissioner Vergara, this is uh, on the agenda as an informational matter. So if you wanted to make a motion for some sort of an action, we should probably calendar it as such so okay. that the public has an awareness of the potential action. Right, right, okay. Great. Uh, Commissioner Foley. President Matsuda, you can take charge anytime. <laughs> um, I have three things to say. One, uh, I think that uh, the presentation you brought up, uh, Ms. Connor, is, is really great considering the complicated myriad things you're trying to communicate to us, and I think you did it in a really great way, so we appreciate that. Um, the, the SB 35 and 423 that just passed, there are protections in there for local historic resources, so Senator Weiner and the Assembly have actually, have actually worked on that, so, so we're good there. Um, and thirdly, I just wonder if the state of California wants to outsource to uh, the San Francisco Planning Department some of the processes they have. Thank you very much. Thank you. Commissioner Wright. Uh, thank you. Um, I also uh, want to thank uh, Ms. Connor for uh, a really clear, informative uh, presentation. The graphics are very helpful and kind of just having this package to reference um, every time I have a question. Um, when I can't call you um, in the middle of the night um, will be helpful. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, the other question slash point that I wanted to make um, regarding uh, Mr. Sucre's uh, comment about uh, the process for, um, for uh, certifying um, properties under the National Register uh, from the local, uh, I just I'm I'm assuming there there would be some number of of properties that that would be qualified for uh, state register that would not rise to the level of national register, and so there would be kind of a miss of some resources in that um, in that process. Likely, so the way the program works is. 
obviously the city and county of San Francisco is a certified local government, which is a program kind of given invested to us by the state of California. Within that program, there is a way of basically nominating or certifying your locally designated program as long as it meets certain bars um, for consistency against the National Register. So keep in mind that even when you nominate something to the National Register, you can find it significant under local, state, or kind of national history. Um, obviously, a lot of our local program is significant under local history. So it's something, for example, that we did with the South End Landmark District, which is one of our Article 10 districts. It's actually a program that we're looking to explore to um, encompass our Article 11 conservation districts um, so that those buildings that are in downtown can avail themselves of tax credits, federal historic re mm -hmm. federal rehabilitation tax credits. Um, so we're literally beginning the initial stages of re-engaging with the state on this program. So given that, um, you know, we kind of want to target it right now towards downtown so that way the office to residential conversions could take advantage of more historic preservation incentives um, as well as a fairly significant um, tax incentive. Um, and then that will kind of give us a good idea on how the process works. Um, I, I can tell you from experience, I think the last time that we did this as a uh, a city was about 10 years ago, and I worked on this program as a consultant um, rather than as on the city side. So I want to make sure we get all our kind of ducks in a row with regard to that process before we kind of start um, reengaging it for other for other parts of our, our, our designation program. Thank you. I, I think just to reiterate and just to re-review that our, our interest as the HPC is to just make sure we do whatever we can, be proactive, getting whatever resources we can on the state registry so we can make sure that they're protected. I mean, even though other pieces of legislation have come through that may offer protections, we just want to be triply sure that we're not having anything fall through the cracks. And that was an intro, oh, sorry, uh, Commissioner Wright. Yes, and, and just to, to add, um, add on to the discussion, um, a question would be, uh, even if that process were relatively simple in kind of trying to, to get uh, the resources listed on the state register, um, how much time does that take? Um, is, you know, is there a backlog in Sacramento? Um, yeah, uh, I'll right. just be honest. Yeah. It's it's lengthy, right? The part of the designation process under the California Register involves going before the State Historic Resources Commission. They only meet four times a year. Um, so obviously you're on a quarterly cycle. Um, I will speak from experience that you often are doing quite a bit of, in the same way we we work very extensively with our engaged public. The state works extensively with um, you know, California is engaged public, so they're ensuring that whatever applications that are brought before them meet, you know, the guidelines that the state has kind of put forward. Can so, we bring them in mass? Yeah, that's a good question. So, yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that would be one of the good questions that we ask. Bring um, them in mass knowing that it has already gone through a process, and our process seems to be 
a little very bit robust. more consistent. Very, very robust. And yeah. <laughs> and and we may not be the only jurisdiction um, <laughs> trying to protect, protect our more of the resources here. So, uh, you know, I, I guess it's just acknowledging that uh, that the path through state registry is maybe not um, not going to help in the immediate. Or that we figure out how it can right, right, yes, work. Yes, yes. Commissioner Nuggets Warren. Um, what is what is the safeguard for demolition? Because even if something is up for demolition, it's going to go through CEQA, but CEQA does not prevent demolition. It is just a longer process. Correct. With mitigations and alternatives and all of that, but it doesn't prevent demolition. What is the Correct. safeguard the, there? The, the state and CEQA has basically well maintained that demolition of a historic resource is a significant and unavoidable impact mm -hmm. for the purposes of CEQA. So there's enough case law on this issue, but it doesn't guarantee that that doesn't necessarily stop a project. It just requires that we disclose the impacts you know, to the public and mitigate them if we're able to. So that's the charge that CEQA is basically asking a jurisdiction. So there's no safeguard for demolition, basically. Uh, Kay Connor, Planning Department staff. One thing I might just add to uh, Rich's comments as well is that um, <clears throat> there aren't necessarily those safeguards, meaning you could still probably go through possibly a demolition. That being said, if it was listed on the California Register, you might have that ability to deny a waiver or an incentive or concession. So you'd be able to potentially... So there's some bargaining power. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so there would be a slight safeguard there. Yeah. yeah. But not but not for the, any of the resources that we deem as a city, as a landmark, that may not be on the California Register. That is correct. Any and all of those could be demolished. Scary. Commissioner yeah. Wright. Oh, yes. Um, and, and so to, on the flip side, uh, um, expanded designation of the resources, particularly to the National Register, also... Uh, uh, for people's information does um, expand some possibilities of um, participation in like the Mills Act program, um, for instance. And so there are some incentives uh, to designation. Uh, it's a question of how uh, a proponent for a project would want to, which direction they would want to take. Um, just a question. I'm, I'm sure that we're not the only local jurisdiction that has these concerns. Uh, are there are any other jurisdictions that have filed an injunction or any use the legal route or I don't know got their local assembly person or senator to identify or maybe move state historic resources along to accept no I think that's a great question I'm not aware of any I don't know if yeah, unfortunately, I'm not aware of any, but we are trying to kind of stay in contact, especially with kind of the larger cities throughout the state to kind of see how we're all implementing all of these different state bills. You know, there are a lot of uh, local jurisdictions that have created like local bonus programs that are more compelling than state density bonus law. You know, we've been unable to really do that within San Francisco. Mm -hmm. At this point, the state density bonus law is 
more flexible than kind of our local program, which is Home SF. It does allow for kind of full-on waivers of requirements. Um, it does provide a pretty hefty density bonus, especially in form-based districts where Home SF was not even applicable. So I think some jurisdictions have provided a local bonus program that, you know, provided very streamlined review, maybe didn't have to go through notice, et cetera, to be able to preserve some of the requirements that they felt worth preserving. Commissioner Wright, did you have yeah, a Yeah, I would just add to, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure on the details um, or, or even if it's uh, in response to a state density bonus or you know, which, which law or regulation it's, it's, uh, it's having some issues with, but I, I think that there have been some challenges in Benicia. Hmm. Um, Legal challenges? Uh, so, yes. Um, but, but I, to, to the extent and what those challenges are and what exactly they're challenging, I don't know. Definitely happy to look into it. And if any of you also kind of find different jurisdictions where you're aware, especially from the preservation standpoint, that, you know, different challenges are, you know, that they're meeting different challenges or going through lawsuits, definitely feel free to contact me and we can dig into those situations. Not to say we would entertain a lawsuit. Is our city attorney there? <laughs> Um, no, I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's good to be aware of what discussions mm -hmm. people are having in which right. jurisdictions and, and what, the, what the issues, you know, which issues they're taking with which um, laws and regulations uh, is probably helpful for everyone. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is also one of the really fundamentally frustrating um, things with implementing state law is that, you know, it, it's not our planning code. And so it's not only is the state law amended potentially every year, but then also you're not just looking at state law, which is broadly applied to the entire state and not looking at San Francisco, obviously, um, but you also have to look at case law. Right. You know, so that's like a whole kind of different thing. Mm -hmm. So all of our city attorneys are constantly following so we can figure out like where that precedent is being set. You know, we do receive technical um, guidance from HCD in the form of letters and they send letters of technical advisory to a million different jurisdictions throughout California that can sometimes be precedential as well. So there is a lot to track. Yeah, it's, it's uh, complicated. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely think we need to figure out uh, if there's an expedited way where we can bring our list in mass to the State Historic Resources Commission there to make sure that we have our properties registered. I mean, I don't mean to sound narrow, but we represent the city and county of San Francisco, and we want to make sure that we do whatever we can to protect our resources. So if you can educate us about how we can be proactive in doing that, that would be great. And I don't know, and we would be happy to learn about other legal challenges that have been brought before local jurisdictions to see how they've kind of dealt with this. Because I would hate to wait until we have a very important historic resource and then find out, oh, guess what? You don't have, you know, any comment ability to comment or your comments really won't, you know, uh, provide a whole lot of impact on this building. I'm not mm -hmm. interested in going down that road unless we, I guess, I don't know, create an injunction or something to make, make sure that doesn't happen. But I'd, I'd like to be more proactive than that. And one more thing to add, 
not necessarily a high note, but also there's the confluence of different state laws. So Senate Bill SB 330 that was passed in 2020 is amended with SB 8 in 2022. It also says that any sort of historic resource determination, like that needs to be done when it's a complete application. So we can't be in the process of designating midstream. So it's right. something else to keep aware of especially if we're going to be considering like the big bulk designation. And I will definitely look to Rich Sucre for help on how we do that. Mm, good point. So we just have to make sure we have them all in right now. Yes. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you very much for your presentation. Any other comments or questions from the commission? This was an informational uh, agenda item, but if any of the commissioners would like to have this be uh, brought back as an agenda item. We can make that motion. Um, well, you would, we wouldn't necessarily need a motion. Oh, you could just, just you could just direct. We could direct that, us, Commissioner uh, Nagasorin. I, I was just going to say, um, per um, Commissioner Vergara's suggestion, and also the suggestion of, um, you know, creating a list of historic resources, we'd like to get updates on that as well. So it would be really effective if we could do um, those either, you know, in the next month so that we know where we are. Yeah, Commissioner, I, I have a note here. Um, as part of our my announcements, I'll add this to our agenda for a future hearing. So that way you get some clarity in terms of the scope of what this is currently impacting. And then we can certainly add um, a letter regarding um, designation under the California Register as a future agenda item. So that way you can direct staff to produce a letter and, you know, on, on behalf of the commission. Great, thank you. Any other comments, last comments before we adjourn for today? Seeing none, we are adjourned. Thank you very much.